please stand for the reading of God's word. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, and then verse 11, And he said to them, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now in my day, and well, there's a few of you out there with uh, uh, gray hair in the same boat. But uh, in my day, back in the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s, uh, conversion stories were very popular. Uh, the conversion of Nicky Cruz, who uh, recounted in the book The Cross and the Switchblade, is an example. And he was a gang member turned Christian evangelist. And at least in the popular Christian culture, uh, these conversion stories usually took the form, I was very bad, I became a Christian, and then I was very good. Now, don't get me wrong, God is in the business of changing lives, and sanctification always comes with conversion. And God does sometimes just turn a life around by his power. But what do you do if your life doesn't fit the model? What do you do if you find sin in your life after conversion? You see, it's easy before conversion 
All those sins are gone. But what do you do if you've already fired your silver bullet? And then you find sin in your life. And how can you face God again? And even more, how can you enjoy your life as a Christian? Well, Jesus tells us, and he tells us right here in this parable. Now, in some ways, this parable is is misnamed uh, because this parable is primarily a story about God. The Father is the central character of this parable. And by the way, uh, parable means alongside. And so when you hear uh, any of Jesus' parables, uh, you are supposed to take your life and line your life up next to the parable. And that way, when you see the work and the goodness of God, you can know that it's for you too. The other thing about parables is parables always speak in pictures. And so this parable is no different. It will give us a picture of ourselves in the prodigal son. It will give us a picture of God and the Father. And it will give us a picture of reconciliation as the son comes home. The central theme of this parable is the goodness of God's love. And we will look at it in three parts that I just mentioned. Seeing ourselves for who we really are. Seeing God for who he really is. And seeing reconciliation as it really is. Now, the the first thing we need to see is the setting for this parable. (coughs) Excuse me. Look back at verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he spoke this parable to them. So there are two groups here. There are the sinners, and then there are the scribes and Pharisees. And the sinners were drawing near to Jesus. They didn't observe Jesus from a distance. They wanted to be close. And it says that all the sinners were drawing near. No one was excluded. And we are already pretty close to the heart of this parable. On the other hand, the scribes and the Pharisees openly complained against Jesus. And we know what they complained. They complained, this man receives sinners. And he eats with them. And it's interesting, the word receives is not just any receives. It is a warm, expectant receive into fellowship. It is the same word that Paul uses to tell the Philippians to receive Epaphroditus into their fellowship. And it is this close fellowship that the scribes and the Pharisees objected to. And then they complained, and he eats with them. And, of course, at that time, even more so than today, I mean, we bring uh, friends and family and 
brothers and sisters in, in the Lord into fellowship in our home. Well, in that day, to bring someone into your home uh, was a clear sign of close, warm fellowship. And the scribes and Pharisees looked at that and said, wait a minute, those are sinners. This man receives sinners and eats with them. This is the charge against Jesus. And so Jesus answers these two charges with this parable. And the parable is in three parts, and uh, we'll be looking only at the third part, the lost son. And that picks up in verse 11. Then he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Now, think about this request. Think about this, what this request would mean. I mean, really, it's a wish that the father uh, were dead. Dad, I'm, I, I don't want to wait for you to die. I'm, I'm ready for my goods right now. You know, I uh, know several multi-generational farmers in the Wellington area in Colorado. And, you know, even today, something like this, well, it's just not done. But in that day, in Israel, it it would be utterly unthinkable. It would indicate a tragic breakdown in the family. Consider the value that the Jews placed on passing land down from generation to generation. God gave them the year of Jubilee to return land to the original family. You know, that this son could show such low regard for his father is is really an amazing thing. And... You know, it's a, it's a low regard not just for his father, but for his uh, mother, for his brother, and, and for the whole community. Everyone would be hurt. And it means that there has been a tragic breakdown in relationship. It's very interesting in verse 12. The son asks for the share of property that is coming to me. And the word underneath property property there is not the word inheritance. It is simply the word wealth. So in case we're thinking, well, the son, maybe he just wants more responsibility to run part of the farm. No, right here. He wants the cash and he wants out. And what does the father have to do? It says the father distributed his livelihood. The son wants cash, and the only way for the father to distribute the cash is to sell part of the farm, to lose part of the livelihood of the family. Now, I'm going into these things so that you can see a picture of what the scribes and the Pharisees and what the the community would think of this son and of this father. And it tells us that the 
son basically gathered all. And this uh, tells us that there's a lot more than money involved here. The son brought a great shame on his father. And you can, you can almost hear the gossip in the town. Did you, did you hear about that son? And then, well, wait a minute. What about that father? And worst of all, the son broke his father's heart. The son rejected his father. The son valued his father's wealth over the father himself. And you, and you don't see it in your Bible, uh, but in the Greek, it is simply the impersonal, the father. There is, there is no personal uh, pronoun. It's not his father. It's the father. Now, the point of Jesus describing the son in this way is to show us what we are like when we reject the Lord Jesus Christ. To reject our God is to say, I have my own ideas about life. I don't need your word. I don't need faith. And I don't need you. Just give me a nice, happy world. Uh, well, I'll take what you have, but not. I won't take you. And isn't this the essence of the rebellious human heart? I'll take what I want, but not the Creator who gives it. You know, it's, it's very easy to see this in the world around. That is the, the predominant uh, philosophy that we live amongst. And yet, I think we can see it in our own hearts as well. It's very easy to see evil in the newspaper or on the Internet. It's very hard to look into our own hearts and see uh, that the roots are there as well. And then it says, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land and he began to be in want. It says he gathered all and he squandered all. Not only did he have a wanton disregard for the father and his mother and the community, but he had a wanton disregard for what he received from them. He received the wealth of the farm, and yet literally it says that he scattered his wealth with reckless living. And at this point, the son has burned all of his bridges, he has no money, no livelihood, no home, no friends, probably no self-respect. And sure enough, precisely at this time, a famine comes to the country and the son is in need. But the famine is not the problem, is it? The problem is the son. His pride has not yet been broken. And can we just note that pride is the very hardest thing to break. People will suffer to the point of poverty and destruction. 
before they will let their pride be broken. Consider your own heart. Is there a streak of pride that will not be broken? A streak of pride that keeps you far from the Father. And finally it says, Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. And no one gave him anything. It says he joined himself. And literally, it should, that's in the passage, so it should read, he was joined. He had no choice in the matter. He was acted upon. He is now serving a foreigner. And you know, the Jews at that time, they still remembered the exile. And it's one thing to be conquered and exiled. But for a Hebrew young man to exile himself to the point of serving a foreigner is unthinkable. Now, it gets worse than that. He's not only serving a foreigner, he's serving pigs. An unclean animal and a hated animal. And so this Hebrew young man, through his pride, through his rebellion, has sunk to the point below pigs. And again, for especially for the scribes and Pharisees, it would be they would look at this man and uh, it's unbelievable to him. In fact, I'm sure that the sinners and the tax collectors would have even thought, okay, that's, that's pretty low. And you see, this is the point of all the details that Jesus gives us here. Jesus wants us to know that there is no point too low to start from. There is no country too far from the Father to come home from. There is no sin so great that the Father is not greater still. Jesus wants us to know that wherever you are, you can come home. And so it is precisely at this point that God enters the picture. And so secondly, we see God for who He really is. Picking up in verse 17. But when He came to Himself, He said, How many of My Father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And the word there is abundant. It's the word used uh, when they collected all the, uh, the fish in the loaves and they had 12 basketfuls left over. It is overflowing abundance. And I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, think about this homecoming. What would you expect? Uh, Kenneth Bailey uh, a man who was a professor at the University of Beirut and my, my favorite author on this parable. Uh, he, he went throughout the, the Middle East and he would ask them, uh, what should the father do when this son comes home? And the universal answer 
leave him on the street, shame him, let him suffer. And I suppose that's the human way of thinking. Shame for shame, rejection for rejection, hurt for hurt. But this is no ordinary father. And so we see what happens. And he arose and came to his father. But while, when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. It says that his father had compassion. And it's a very beautiful thing. At this point, the possessive pronoun has returned. It's no longer the father. It's his father. His father saw him afar off. His father was looking and waiting. And hopefully you see the father's love directed straight at his son. And it says that he fell on his neck and kissed him. You know, men at that time uh, did not run. They wore robes to keep them cool in the heat and to hike up those robes to run would have been an embarrassment. You know, if you've been to the airport and seen families uh, reunited, uh, you'll notice that even today, men don't usually run. It's, it's the wives and the kids that, that uh, run to greet, greet uh, the husbands and fathers. And I suppose we should learn something from that. You know, when, uh, when my children were young, one of my favorite times was coming home from work. Because my children would literally burst out the door. Daddy's home, daddy's home, daddy's home. And they would run and I would get down and they would jump on me and we would hug. And I would embrace them and they would embrace me. And you see at that moment when my kids ran to greet me. At that moment, I knew that I was loved. And I knew that it is good. Oh, it is so good to be loved. And I knew that it is good to be a daddy in my house. And this son, when he came home, and his father ran to greet him and hug him and kiss him. In that moment, this son knew that he was loved. And he knew that it is good. It is good to be loved. And it is good be a son in the Father's house. And can you picture God running to greet you? Running to love you, to embrace you, to welcome you home? Even while wearing rags and smelling like pigs. You see, it is good 
to be loved by the Lord. It is good to be a child of the King. It is good to come home to your Heavenly Father. And everything the Father did was to restore His Son. A ring on His finger, the best robe, shoes on His feet, and all of these speak of reconciliation and restoration to sonship. You see, the Pharisees charged Jesus. This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. And Jesus says, well, let me tell you how my Father in Heaven receives sinners who return to Him. He runs to greet them. He puts a ring on their finger, the best robe on their back. He restores them in every way possible. He rejoices over a sinner who returns home. This, my son, was lost and is found. He was dead and is alive. And Jesus says, let me tell you how my father eats with sinners. My father kills the fatted calf. He throws a celebration and invites the community. The picture is this. God's abundant love. God rejoicing over a sinner who returns home. You see, the world said, shame the young man on the street. But God says, time to restore my son. You know, it's interesting. uh, To kill the fatted calf, the father would have invited the whole community to a feast. And so rather than shaming that son on the street, uh, the father openly declared that my son is restored. My son is not going to be shamed in the community. Now what do you picture when you think about coming home to God? Do you see God up there saying, Who do you think you are? I know what you've done. You can hide on earth, but I see the heart. Where have you been? What happened to all that money? Does God stand back just waiting for you to prove yourself? And of course you know that you never can. Let me just fill in this picture a little bit. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them on the cross. What was he saying? Forgive. The Greek word is aphiomi. It means to separate and banish. When Jesus called James and John by the sea, they aphiomi their father's nets and followed Jesus. In other words, they left. When the soldiers came to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' disciples aphiomi. That is, they scattered and left. When Jesus healed the nobleman's son fever, it says the fever aphiomi. It left. It was no more. The picture is this. God separates your sin and casts them away. God's forgiveness is real. God makes an actual separation of sin 
and cast them away. Micah 7.19, God will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. See, when God forgives, when God separates your sin, those sins are gone. He's not just waiting to to say, oops, one more goof up. Isaiah 1.18 Now come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And you think of a stained cloth with scarlet stain entwined into every fiber. God's forgiveness is so powerful, he can pull that stain out of every fiber where it's embedded. And it doesn't matter how dark that stain is, what is left is clean and white as snow. The point is this, there is no sin so entwined in your life that God cannot separate and banish that sin. There is no sin so dark of a stain that God cannot separate that sin and banish it away and leave you white as snow. When God forgives, He accepts you as clean and pure because He has separated your sins and cast them onto Jesus. And says that Jesus condemned sin on the cross, that they might be forever gone. And that means the guilt of sin, means the corruption of sin, it means the memory of sin. All your sins cast away, those sins are gone. And I hope you can see how utterly impotent our human ideas, psychological ideas of forgiveness. God's forgiveness is real. And so you see, this father didn't see a son coming home who squandered his money, wearing rags, smelling like pigs. This father saw his son. And this father bestowed his love on his son. Now, you and I know that every one of us deserves all the wrath that we can imagine from God. Our sin is an evil thing. And so that we are clear, God does not wink at sin. He does something something infinitely better. He redeems the sinner. He casts all your sins on Christ, who died the death that you deserve, who set you free from sin and death. Though your sins be as scarlet, yet you... You shall be white as snow. And so we see, why did Jesus paint the sun as so bad as the worst of sinners? Precisely so that he could paint God as so much better. As bad as the sun was bad, so much greater is God's love. And the truth of the gospel is this. Christ receives sinners. And the point of this 
is that God loves you not because of who you are. Not because maybe your sins are a little less scarlet. God loves you because who who He is. And here's the heart of how we enjoy living the Christian life. God is full of mercy and forgiveness and love. And so we must see God for who He really is. Jesus says, let me tell you about my Father in Heaven. Let me tell you how He receives sinners and eats with them. Psalm 63.3 Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Now, let me ask a question. What would it mean in your life if you saw God this way? What would it mean in your family if you saw God this way? What would it mean in this church if you saw God this way? What kind of love and fellowship would you experience? What kind of confidence and assurance would you experience in your life? What kind of grace and mercy would you extend in your marriage? To see God as He really is. Now finally, we need to consider reconciliation as it really is. In verse 18, the Son says, I will arise and go to my Father and will say to Him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before You. And I am no longer worthy to be called Your Son. Make me like one of Your hired servants. You see, the Son saw that His Father was a good and a generous man, and so he got up and he went home. And he went home in humble repentance. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Now think about those words for a minute. Those are the hardest words you will ever say. It is so, so hard to acknowledge I have sinned. I am the one who has done wrong. I deserve only punishment. And notice that the son acknowledges his sin is against heaven. It's not just out there. It's not abstract. It is against and in the sight of his father. And we notice that the son was willing to accept whatever consequences would come. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He didn't come home with pride. Yeah, I sinned. No big deal. His repentance took the form of words and actions. Second Corinthians 7.10 Godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. This young man finally saw his father rightly. And as he saw that his father was a generous man, he cast his very life into his father's care. He trusted 
and with his trust came repentance. Romans 2.4 Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? You see, God's goodness, and this is why Jesus painted the Father in such a way. God's goodness is meant to lead us to repentance. And seeing Christ for who he really is, we can cast our lives into his care. And so here's the question. Do you need to come to yourself? Perhaps God has brought you low for this very purpose, that he might summon you home. Father says, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Notice that the father says, my son. And it's very interesting at this point in verse 20. It says that the son arose and came to his father. And the word his there is not just a possessive pronoun. It's something called a Greek reflexive pronoun. The meaning is his own father. And so the progression in this parable is from the abstract, the father, to his father, to his very own father. It is very personal. You see, what is gained in the gospel is not just escape from judgment. What is gained is God himself. What is gained is to know God, to experience his love, to rejoice in his presence. We are saved to be restored to our very own Father. You know, I I heard this quote from, from a pastor named Brad Bigney. He's quoting uh, Douglas Copeland, who was a a very successful uh, young novelist who wrote a book, Life After God. And it's about a generation that was raised without God. He says, I think I'm a broken person. I seriously question the road my life has taken. I endlessly rehash the compromises I've made in life. I have an insecure job in an immoral corporation so I don't have to worry about money. I put up with halfway relationships, so I don't have to worry about loneliness. He says, now, here is my secret. And I tell you with an openness of heart, I doubt I shall ever again achieve. My secret is I need God. I'm sick and can no longer make it alone. There are a lot of people in the world who were raised without God. And the secret for the world is they need Jesus. And the secret in your life is you need Jesus. Not just to know about Jesus. You need Jesus. Amen.